This podcast is an initiative of core to ed and is supported by an independent educational grant from Ipsen, Kiwikiran and Ultragenics. The views in this podcast are the personal opinions of the experts. They do not necessarily represent the views of the experts' academic institution, employer, organisation or other group or individual. For expert disclosures on any conflict of interest, please visit the core to ed website. Hello and welcome to this podcast covering rare bone disease highlights from day one of the ASBMR 2021 meeting. My name is Kasim Javed and I'm a rheumatologist from the University of Oxford and I look after adults with rare bone diseases. And we've got a fantastic co-chair here as Dr. Zulf Magal, who's a real legend in pediatric rare bone diseases. Thank you, Kasim. Um, I'm Zulf Magal um, and I'm consultant in pediatric bone disease at Royal Manchester Children's Hospital in Manchester, England. Uh, thank you, Zulf. So we've just listened to a good session at the ASBMR. Obviously, you're coming from the paediatric perspective. What abstracts really stood out for you? So, uh, Kasim, there were two um, presentations which were standout presentations for me as a paediatrician. First one was by Dr. Frumberg, uh, who gave a very nice talk on the use of berizumab and its utility in improving the uh, lower limb alignment in children with X-linked hypophosphatemia or XLH. And the second one was by Dr. Rachel Gaffney, who uh, presented data on the effects of ancalorate on mineral physiology in a rare condition called autosomal dominant hypocalcemia type 1 or ADH type 1. So if we start with the first um, presentation, as we know that in X-linked hypophosphatemia, you get chronic uh, urinary phosphate loss due to FAX mutation, which causes increased renal phosphate wastage and low serum 125-dihydroxy vitamin D. The net effect is malabsorption of phosphate and calcium, leading to impaired mineralization of the growth plate and osteoid in children. So when these children start to stand up, they develop lower limb deformities. And historically, we've sort of treated these patients with conventional treatment with activated form of vitamin D and uh, phosphate. But in spite of this treatment, these children needed a correction of their lower limb deformities with uh, epiphysiodysis or guided growth treatment and later with osteotomies. One of the effects of uh, lower limb deformities is that it may lead to osteoarthritis and chronic pain in adulthood. So Dr. Frumberg and colleagues looked at uh, radiographs which were carried out as part of the phase two XLH study in children who are one to four years old who were treated with berizumab. And they looked at their radiographs, standing long leg radiographs at the, at the start of the trial at 64 weeks and 160 weeks. And they showed a significant improvement in um, the alignment of these children's limbs, varying towards correction of the normal mechanical axis. So an important message of this study is that early treatment of toddlers and young children with XLH may prevent the bone deformities developing, less need for surgery, and hopefully it may translate into less osteoarthritis in adulthood. That's a great summary, Zulf. And I suppose as an adult clinician, we always like our, our XLH transition patients coming with as straight as limb as possible, because that makes our lives easier as well. 
when we looked at the data, they did have one patient who actually went into valgus deformity. What were your comments on that? You know, some children do develop a little bit of genuvalgum uh, as they get older, and they do seem to correct. So it could be that this was just a phase, or I don't know whether that patient actually had um, hemiapiphysiodysis. It was not very clear. Sometimes when you leave, leave these eight plates in too long, it can go the other way as well. So it's without actually looking at the full data, it's very difficult to sort of comment on that. And I think it just underlies the importance of early diagnosis and getting them to a specialist center where they've got access to these treatments. Do you think that's now going to reinforce the clinical positioning of uh, anti-FGIF23 antibodies in the early treatment of XLH? Yes, so at the moment, at least in UK and Europe, it's licensed from the age of one year onwards. And uh, certainly it's our experience that the earlier you start treatment, the better the outcome in uh, terms of preventing the lower limb deformities. In the UK, we don't have any restrictions in um, whom we treat. As long as the patient has got confirmed XLH, we can sort of treat them with pyrizumab. But of course, in other countries, there is a more selective use of pyrizumab. But certainly in the United Kingdom, I think we should be able to treat these patients early and hopefully prevent uh, lower limb deformities. Thank you, Zulf. Dr. Frumberg also mentioned height, which is a very contentious issue. What are your thoughts on that? So short stature, as you know, Kasim, is an important feature of XLH, and it arises partly because of the effect of uh, this disease uh, on um, linear growth, but partly due to lower limb deformities. Now, I think that the correction of lower limb deformities contributes to improved growth. But in the phase three trial, the effect of linear growth was not as great. So I think the jury is out as to whether birizumab will completely optimize the linear growth in, in children with XLH. But certainly improvement in limb deformities will improve their, uh, their, their height. Fantastic. That's great. So, Zulf, you mentioned another abstract. It's of a very rare disorder, autosomal dominant hypercalcemia. What's your experience yes. of managing these patients? So, autosomal dominant hyperparathyroidism type 1, as you know, calcium is caused by an activating heterozygous mutation in the calcium sensing receptor. And this results in patients having low serum calcium and symptoms associated with that, which can be tetany, seizures and muscle cramps. But at the same time, they have propensity to hypercalciuria. So the treatment of this condition is very challenging because if you give them oral calcium salts and activated forms of vitamin D, such as calcitriol or alpha-calcidol, it normalizes their calcium, but they also develop hypercalciuria with the risk of attendant risk of uh, nephrocalcinosis, nephrolithiasis, and ultimately end-stage renal failure. So it's a very challenging problem uh, to treat. And uh, Dr. Gaffney and colleagues presented data on um, phase two open-label dose-ranging study of a calcilytic drug called Encalrit. And uh, basically, the headline message from uh, this presentation was that about 13 subjects with different mutations, nine different mutations in the calcium sensing receptor, the treatment with encalorate resulted in normalization of their serum calcium. It um, led to increase in their parathyroid hormone levels. In three subjects, 
the 24-hour urine calcium um, levels normalized, and in three subjects, it was completely undetectable. So this is the data in six out of 13 subjects, but I believe the other uh, subjects also resulted in uh, normalization of their urine calcium excretion. So this is therefore uh, provides a unique and physiological way of treating this rare condition. Uh, we can now restore their normal calcium, avoid the symptoms associated with hypocalcemia, at the same time, uh, not put their kidneys at risk. So it's very promising. And certainly in our practice, if these data are confirmed by, by the full trial, then uh, this would be an important advance in, in our management of this uh, disorder. I quite agree. This is a, a game changer. We now can almost look at these patients as treatable and, and get on with focusing on the other disorders that we really struggle to manage. So, Kasim, if we move away from pediatrics and then turn to the adult studies, I see that um, you were one of the investigators on the asteroid study. Uh, please, could you enlighten us about the main findings of this trial and its implications for adult patients with osteogenesis imperfecta? For sure. So, to, just to recap, osteogenesis imperfecta, rare bone disease, increased bone fragility with variable severity. Uh, so type 1 patients tend to have lots of fractures in childhood, relative lower rate of fractures during early adulthood that then builds up again as they get older. Type 3 is much more devastating, severe restriction in height, limb deformity, and they continue to fracture through life, and type 4 is in between. And whilst you're lucky in pediatrics, you do have therapies that uh, do produce significant benefits to patients, and adults are really struggling. The evidence that bisphosphonates actually reduce fractures uh, is lacking, and if there is an effect, it's likely to be small. So uh, with the advance in bone biology, they have looked at activation of the Wnt pathway through inhibiting sclerostin, the natural inhibitor of Wnt, with an intravenous drug called cetruzumab a fully humanized antibody. Building on the previous phase 2a study, they did a study in about 100 patients who have followed up now uh, at the dose of 2, 8, and 20 milligrams per kilogram every month for a year within a 12-month extension where they could receive zeledronate. And for me, uh, I, I suppose it was disappointing that the primary endpoint, which was significant change in uh, trabecular volumetric BMD, was not significant. But I was really heartened to see impressive changes in uh, total VBMD as measured by HRPQCT. And these then led to impressive improvements in estimated bone strength and load failure. So that was very encouraging. And they saw also positive signs at the tibia. And these were mirrored by improvements in usual bone density measurement with dual x-ray absorptiometry. And Although it wasn't significant, it was very tantalizing. The fracture rates did seem to go down in the uh, higher dose compared to the lower dose. Uh, and the, the final really exciting uh, uh, insight was the effect was in both type 1 and the more severe types in o of OI. And previous studies using other anabolics have suggested that maybe the, the more severe type 3s are, are less responsive to treatment. So it was very satisfying to see that the treatment responses were equal, irrespective of the type of OI. Thank you, Kasim. So can I ask why HRPQCT measured trabecular bone density was chosen 
as the primary outcome of this trial when you have more established outcomes of aerial bone density measured at the lumbar spine? That's a really good question. So the, the reason was actually practicality and what we thought would happen. So the reason we didn't like aerial bone density, because it's so challenging in terms of spinal deformity, because remember, we were looking at severe patients with OI, and you know they recruited 100 patients, and a good few of them had severe OI type 3, type 4. So that's a real credit to the study. So that was our concern. And of all of the bone compartments that we thought would change most with sclerostin inhibition would have been the trabecular uh, volumetric compartment. However, what we found was there was such a variability between patients in terms of their VBMD scores, which you don't truly understand why that was, but there was such a noisy baseline, it was almost impossible to see a signal after, uh, after 12 months. So that was the reason why we picked that, because we thought it was an easy winner. And, you know, this is science. You know, we go with our assumptions, we test them, and sometimes we're right and sometimes we're not right. Absolutely. But as you say, the total volumetric bone density measured at distal radius and distal tibia, you know, changed significantly. And the strength parameters by finite element analysis um, also showed improvement in strength parameters as well as improvement in more traditional DEXA-measured variables. And, and I think the trend in improvement in fracture outcome, which is the holy grail of any trial, uh, is also very interesting. And I just wonder if this study was done in children who actually fracture more than adults. As you know, children with osteogenesis imperfecta tend to have more fractures in the prepubertal period. And after puberty, the number of fractures in most patients tend to go down. And I believe there, there will be a pivotal study in children done. You know, it can be powered to look at fracture as an outcome from the Strizumab study. I don't know whether you have any comments on that. I think that's a really important point. We can use surrogate outcome measures like aerial bone density and HRPQCT measurements. So as we've shown in the adult asteroid study, we can be wrong in that our surrogate measure doesn't behave the way we want to because of natural variability. And a fracture endpoint study in OI would be so important for the field uh, and really justify the extra effort it takes, not only for provision of these uh, monoclonal antibodies, but also for the patient burden having to go in for monthly intravenous infusions. Thank you, Kasim. So, Kasim, there was another interesting oral presentation on uh, TGF beta expression in, uh, in bonds of uh, adults with osteogenesis imperfecta and very early studies using uh, monoclonal antibody to downregulate it. Do you have any comments on that? I think this is a really exciting part uh, of the presentation. This is an, a much earlier stage of development. So this was divided into two parts. One was more of a mechanistic analysis of bones of, of children with type 3 OI to confirm that there is a a TGF-beta proof-of-concept pathological role uh, in, in OI. And it's really important because by attacking TGF-beta, they're looking at both skeletal and non-skeletal uh, outcomes. Uh, and as you know, there's been a lot of work, a lot of interest in the role of lung in osteogenesis imperfecta, especially with COVID. So that was very interesting. And their results uh, from the animal studies did seem to follow through in, in the human studies. They were what we would expect in terms of changes in bone density with the, with the study. And, you know, they're going to be looking at the lung data. 
very small numbers. <laughs> you know, we're looking at individual patient data. Uh, some patients fractured, and they couldn't look at their data. They looked at two doses. Uh, and you know, this is definitely an area to look out for the future. What did you think about the TGF beta story, and as from a pediatric perspective? So I, I think again, uh, this is uh, going to be a potentially important way of targeting the important pathway which is involved in uh, low bone mass and uh, increased fracture risk in in OI. But these are early days, and uh, once the safety of, of of this medication has been established. Uh, then hopefully there will be sort of phase one and phase two trials uh, and pivotal trials which will happen in pediatrics. But it looks very promising. Uh, certainly the preclinical data and the, the in vitro work looks very promising. What do you think about the DMP study for XLH, the, the cohort study looking at neurological features? Yes, um, yes, I was going to ask you about that because this, I, I thought, was very interesting. To me, this sounds like a very similar to the uh, European XLH registry that we have, which is uh, longitudinally looking at the real-world data in large number of patients with XLH. And the investigators basically looked at burden of uh, neurological and psychiatric um, outcomes in children and adults with XLH predominantly. And it's not surprising that in XLH, the burden of disease seems to increase uh, during adolescence and adulthood in comparison to ch childhood. So headaches were more common in adults. Depression and the use of pain uh, medications were greater in adults than in children. I suppose, uh, to me, an important message was headache must be taken very seriously in, in a child with XLH because um, this may be a clue to um, Kihari-1 malformation and uh, Syrinx formation uh, and I certainly have had two patients who presented with headaches and dizziness. And when we did do the uh, CT and MRI scans, uh, the child did have uh, Kihari with a large syrinx and needed, uh, and both these children needed decompression. Uh, but at the moment, we're not systematically screening for these neurological complications, in, in certainly in our practice. And I don't know whether. Having heard this talk, uh, you will go back to your practice and start doing CT and MRI scans on, on, on your patients, especially if they have uh, uh, neuropsychiatric problems. I think it was important because it raised the value of a routine assessment for neurological features. Uh, I think with XLH, we tend to focus on growth and bone and the skeleton. And this really highlighted we have to be a little bit wider. And we've had a very unfortunately fatal case of an Arnold one in an adult where the, the if, when you look back the signs were probably there but a headache is so common and you know you know MRI of the craniocervical junction and you'll pick it up it's not a complicated scan to do if you have the facilities so I think it's really good to highlight that but it's also struck by you know the the hearing loss is is quite quite high and the very high rates of, of, of opioid use that we're having in these patients. So, you know, this is obviously a very severely affected group of patients. And I think it's, it's good. I, I'm thinking of how we can link up the registries because we just need more data to see what are the predictors. Because one thing that strikes me is that, you know, it's a very variable disease and it gets worse with age. And if we could get up some better predictors of who is at risk of uh, an Arnold Chiari or, or other issues, and maybe we can be more focused in our expensive imaging uh, going forward. But yeah, I, I was very interested in that uh, uh, abstract. I thought it worked really well. 
Well, thank you, Kasim, for a very interesting discussion. So to summarize our thoughts today, and Calrate appears to be an efficacious therapy option for patients with ADH1. Early treatment of infants and toddlers with XLH may prevent lower limb deformities. Cetruzumab treatment in adults with OI resulted in a significant increase in distal radial and tibial volumetric trabecular bone mineral density and bone strength parameters measured by HRPQCT. And finally, neurological and psychiatric problems are common in XLH. I'd just like to thank our listeners and would encourage you to tune in to our other podcasts from the ASBMR 2021 series. This podcast was brought to you by CoreToEd Independent Medical Education. Please visit coretoed.com for more information.